0: Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, it is with great privilege that we gather today in your house on this, the Lord's day. We thank you for all the memories and the sights, the sounds, the smells of this holiday season. But Lord, may they all be useful to bring to our memory the things that matter most. Things that we've been singing about, things that we will study from your word, things hopefully that we'll have the opportunity to tell others that perhaps are not aware that the light of the world came to this earth for the purpose of dying, for the purpose of putting back what was lost in the Garden of Eden when we sinned against God. Lord, thank you for salvation. And for the truth of the scriptures. We ask your blessing on our study today. And we ask your blessing on our fellowship. May we be the encouragement to one another that that we're in need of. And Lord, we thank you for our live stream. And for those that are able to meet from their homes. We ask that you bless other churches. In the situations they find themselves in. Uh, that they would be able to meaningfully worship you using the best of what they have right where they are. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to be faithful and true in the same manner. And Lord, with expectant hearts, we ask that you take full jurisdiction over our mind, our attitude. And Lord, make this time together in your house something of eternal significance. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you again. And uh, each time I look out, I I see somewhat of those that may have been here in the weeks past and then some who have not. I'm still wishing there were a way for me to look into the camera and see into the living rooms. I think that would probably ruin the whole (laughs) Zoom connection we've got because there is that uh, expectation of privacy on the other side there. But we're still grateful for it and glad uh, that you are with us this morning. There's a couple of announcements that I wanted to make before we turn in our Bibles to John 17. And you may want to go ahead and do that while you're listening. But you may have noticed that uh, our Christmas tree didn't make it all the way into the sanctuary. It's out in the front yard. And that was on purpose. Uh, We knew... It seemed by the summer that the whole situation we find ourselves in with, with COVID is probably going to disrupt our Christmas traditions as they are. And we had a couple of, of ideas and uh, everything seemed to be a trade-off. So what we've planned to do is to meet on the lawn on Christmas Eve and to sing together and to light our candles together and the reason why we chose the yard is because we can do it all together. There's no way that we could all get in this room as we have in the past. And even last year, there were some that were turned away. And being that our, our, our distanced protocol only lets us put about a third of the folks that this room would fit if we all loved each other really good, um, we opted to do that outside. I know that's different. Uh, but it's a different year. And hopefully it'll be the best choice for all involved, we hope that we'll see you then. We can spread out real good. Pray for good weather. Um, I'm being specific in my prayer. I want a little bit of snow just for silent night, <laughs> and then I want it to stop for our ride home. Um, that would make it picturesque, wouldn't it? But I hope that it'll, it'll be meaningful like so many other things that we've done differently so far this year. Uh, the best part will be we're together. The other announcement. um, Many of you have been very faithful in your signing up for our church gathering, letting us know what to expect. And that's the only way we can do that. And uh, some Sundays it matches well with what we expect. Some Sundays it's way off. The the better one was, I think, we had 20 sign up and 80-some showed up. (laughs) We can do better than that, and the reason why we would try to is just to make sure that others who would sign up would get a seat that they expect, rather than get uh, arrive later than someone who didn't, and then the overflow is how we correct that. We haven't needed it yet, but as this as vaccines come onto the scene and all types of things like that, uh, we'll get to where our demand for seats is more than the seats we have for them for a period of time. I think that's what we're we're trying to avoid. So if you could be uh, helpful, call the office during business hours a week ahead, or send us an email, we'll sign it on the list, and uh, we'll give you a gold star. So with that said, let's turn to John chapter 17. And we continue in what is called... For the most part, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I'd rather opt for the term farewell prayer. There's so much more going on in this than than just the office of the high priest. We see the king uh, as well. And uh, we see the prophet. But trying to think of a way to, to begin another message and there will be three next week we'll finish up we look at the larger uh, portion of this chapter today anyone who has children and raises those children in a Christian home knows the difficulties that come in teaching that child uh, what things are important what things are not as important where we need to be serious and where we don't need to be serious, right? Some of the times that I've been uh, most frustrated. Or even um, just kind of broke out into a hilarious uncontrollable laughter. Is trying to get my children at certain stages to pay attention when it's time to pray. If that's in church. Or if that's over a meal. Or if that's in family devotions what we're studying is not prayer in devotions or over a meal or even prayer in church this is prayer between the son of God and God the father and the ability to use language to talk about how serious of a topic we're looking at couldn't be exhausted but at the same time this is a a human God the son of God speaking to human men in human terms that we only understand in, in a human way. So at the same time, it's as serious as, as, as we can get and then it's also God condescending to the level of our humanity to make some things clear to us that we must know. So let me read to you the, the middle portion beginning in verse 6 and then we'll pray and ask the Lord for some help. And then we'll try to understand this as best we can in order to be obedient. Verse 6, chapter 17, Gospel of John. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is God's word, and let's pray. Father in heaven, for our portion today, we ask that you explain to us these verses from John 17, where you had paused, looked up into heaven, and began to pray. They're hearing what you're saying, but you're talking to your Father. Lord, help us to see to hear, to understand. And Lord, may that be glorifying to you and useful to your kingdom. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, again, what we just read is actually you might have been able to see if you're looking at the paragraphs, that's the larger section of the three paragraphs in that prayer. We looked at the first last week. We look at the last next week. But what we just read is concerned with the disciples. Last week it was concerned with with Christ's glory. Next week it will be concerned with the people that the disciples would lead to Christ in the Great Commission. That includes us. But for today it's just the disciples. And within the next few hours their world will be none less than a nightmare to them. Jesus knows this. They feel like something's coming but they have no idea. So even with three years of, of, of a background with Jesus, they're not ready for what's coming. And Jesus here tenderly and lovingly commits them to the care of His Father. I've kept them, now you keep them is really one of the keys to this paragraph. Uh, look at verse 6. And again, He's talking about the disciples. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, uh, first of all, what does it mean that Jesus manifested the name of God to those that God had given him? Some of this we've heard before. Some of this is new, and there's a big word there that I should define: to manifest. That's the ESV's version, is to make something known or to make it clear. Uh, You might hear it used in, say, uh, a medical context, that a certain ailment or disease manifests itself in these symptoms. The symptoms show up. They point to what's going on. That's how it becomes clear or is made known. So Jesus is making known... His Father's name to people who were given to Him from out of the world. So there's a world full of people. Some of them have been taken out of the world and given to Jesus because they belong to the Father. And to say that His name was manifested or made known, uh, in a general sense you could just say that His name stands for His whole person and Jesus generally uh, has explained to the disciples the basics of God's nature. That, that would get you at least a complete on a test or a quiz. But I think there's a little more going on here. And you'd have to... We could camp out here, go back to the Old Testament, and talk about God's name. Because using God is actually just a way that we refer to Him. It's a designation. It's not His name. Uh, we've got many ways that we describe His office as king of kings, lord of lords, holy, holy, holy. Uh, The the great I am was one way that he described this. But he actually chose a name for himself that he used to reveal himself to his chosen people, the Hebrews. It was spelled out Yahweh, which was tough in Hebrew um, and really almost unutterable. It's hard to have been said. Later, we call that Jehovah. You've heard of Jehovah God. That would be His name. So to manifest or make known His name is an interesting way for Jesus to say He had uh, brought His disciples along to understand the Father. And then there's the business of Jesus' name, which is not a special name, it's really a common name. It was a name that a lot of Hebrew boys had. It was the name Joshua or Yeshua, which also was a way of saying Jehovah saves. So, Jehovah saves, explains Yahweh to the people of God. This is exactly what was said in verse 18 of John chapter 1. He will reveal Him to us. So, you could say, um, in a a manner of speaking, um, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world... Uh, is explaining the way God will save this world by just doing it in front of their eyes. So when he says he's manifested his name, he's saying, I have revealed to these men in my flesh more about you than any man has ever known before, technically. It's a lot wrapped up in, in that statement. We already know what is meant by the language. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Because last week, and we talked about the predestinarian tone of having uh, people given to Jesus by God and kept by them. And uh, the those portions of this passage uh, are really abound. But what I did want to show you, because I think this is always important. The trouble we get into, whether or not it's, predestinarian or free will is holding either one of those two tightly look at what Jesus is crediting to these men that they have done that he's giving them credit for Uh, he had just said they have kept your word they're the ones doing the keeping and what are they keeping the words that Jesus gave them which are actually the words of God and then he goes on in verse 7 Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. That's an accomplishment. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received those words. Whose responsibility is it to receive the word from the Scriptures? Jesus is acting like it's the disciples' responsibility. That's what they've done. And have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now we're getting close to John three sixteen We'll refer to that a few times today, but whosoever believeth these are the whosoever there's the whoever and then the whosoever, and then those that are given to Jesus from the world that now belong to him. so to get even one more degree uh as, as far as, as clarity and specifics here, what is Jesus saying that they have? Received, believed, and kept. All from the last few verses here. Specifically, that Jesus has come from God. And that everything that Jesus has said was given to him from Father God. That's important. Theologically. I'll try to explain. But before I do, we know for certain that they had their misconceptions. And their three years with Jesus has been shot through with these How long have I been with you and you don't know or you don't get this? On and on and on and on. As if it just seems like John is being very hard on these guys in his record. Will they ever get these things? Well, Jesus says what's most important. They have got. And it's clear. Uh, They had their misconceptions. Their faith is still weak. But Jesus here says that their attitude toward him was right. What would the sound of that be like if you're one of the disciples listening after three years of feeling like you never get it right? What about your life as a Christian so far? And to overhear Jesus praying to His Father and say that about you. That you know the most important. That you've received what you need to receive. That you've kept what you need to keep. That you've believed what's most important to believe. You know, we always, not always, but you might have heard said, the only person on the planet that you can know is saved beyond shadow of a doubt is you because you can't read anybody else's mind. That'd be true about everybody here, but there are at least 11 guys that we know of from the scriptures that were saved beyond shadow of a doubt because Jesus tells us that right here. They have believed. There's no evidence that any of these men had rejected or doubted the truth that was given to them. They might not have understood everything, but they did know, as Jesus has said, that he said what was the words of God and that he was sent from God. I guess it would be a good place to ask ourselves, do we believe those basics? Do we believe that what Jesus says is God's word? Do we believe that Jesus was sent? By God. Because Jesus is putting quite the significance on those two things. And when others were leaving. Do you remember that? After the feeding of the 5,000 chapter 6. People are leaving. Did his disciples go away? No. They said where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. Even when they scatter. They find each other. They hold up in a room. They're there when Jesus comes back. They couldn't get away as it were. That right there, that Jesus speaks the words of God and was sent from God, also is not believed by any other religion on the face of this planet. That is uniquely Christian. And it is something that these men have been faithful to do. Why is it important that they believe that Jesus came from God? and the leave no stone unturned and then we'll, we'll move on have you ever heard anybody and you hear this from time to time and it might just be something that you get from moving around in seminary and school but there are those that might put an overemphasis on the red letters of the Bible I, I, I'm for the red letters I, I, I believe in Jesus I don't know much about that Old Testament and, and I, I, frankly part of it makes me feel uncomfortable But I'm a follower of Jesus. You've got to understand that this Jesus here, in so many ways and in so many different angles, is the same God. They have each other's stuff, they give each other people who are redeemed. Um, It makes no sense at all. This is one of those lessons that Christians, at least from the variety that came up the way I did, we inadvertently, but in error, believe that Jesus, the man of Galilee, the humble, suffering servant, who's kind and loving toward the least of these, and spending time with, with women at a well... A woman at a well and, and, and friends of sinners and tax collectors. And we really love that guy. But when we get to our Old Testament, we've, we just feel we got nothing in common with this God who would wholesale destroy wicked nations who knew better. It's the same God. And it's our error if we don't see the gentle and lowly in heart Jesus as being the one who came from and words were from the mouth of the God who before the world was ever made determined to give His Son in your spot to keep you forever. That's a God whose heart is predisposed to mercy, not wrath. A lot to learn in that area. But I thought it worth a mention on our way through. That's kind of like pulling the car over for a break, um, to see something and then getting back on the road. Um, Let's look at this last verse here. Um, Let me get my pages back in order. He says to them, uh, "...I am praying for them," in verse 9, "...I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." There's, there's some stumbling blocks in this verse. One being it looks like he's cold-hearted toward the world. He's not praying for them. But that's just that he's being specific about whom he's praying for. Quite simply, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He makes a clear distinction between them and the world. And then to say that Jesus is not praying for the world at the same time. This, of course, doesn't mean that the world is beyond his love. We have a verse for that. Remember what that was? John three sixteen, This, of course, uh, means that the world was on his heart. He's in perfect fellowship with the one who so loved the world that he was going to give his son up for them. Again, this God the Father is God the Son. And that to make sure they were never lost. Here's the trick about this verse. The world will be reached through these men he is praying for. John is numbered in that 11. We're reading his gospel this morning. It's through the disciples, so it is for them that he's praying now. He'll pray for those that they'll reach from the world in the verses to come, and it'll make more sense when we get to the next paragraph. So that's what that means. Verse 10, All mine are yours, yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Then he addresses his father's holy father keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one so that's a larger chunk here let's break that down it is worth noting and i want you to look here so you can see it that the statement yours are mine and mine are yours look there in verse 10 mine are yours and yours are mine and i am glorified in them um I hear something. <laughs> Sometimes it's okay. Accidents are all right, <laughs> and, and um, there's grace for all that stuff. <laughs> it's just embarrassing. <laughs> we, we, we—how do we say that? We weep with those who weep. We laugh with those who laugh. We're embarrassed for those who are embarrassed, <laughs> and then we pick up and keep going. Um. let's see here. Yours are mine and mine are yours. The point I want to make here is any of God's creatures could say what's mine is yours. But to say to God what's yours is mine would point to a very special relationship, would it not? Even one of those ants I was talking about last week, those fire ants, could say to their creator, look, everything in this anthill is yours, but they can't really say to God, all that's yours is mine. I could come to your house this afternoon and, and set a new record for hospitality by just saying, you know what, all that's mine is yours. But it wouldn't be the same as us if I just said, and just so we're clear, I expect all that's yours is mine. You'd say, we don't know each other that well, right? So for Jesus to be able to say, all that's mine is yours, is one thing. But to say, all that's yours is mine, is again to say he's equal with him. We hit this at every turn in this passage, it seems. Um, No creature could ever say such a thing. Only God could say it of himself. Jesus says he's glorified in these men too. Look at it. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. He's talking about the disciples. Jesus is glorified in them. This is another wonderful thing to hear if you're these disciples. Because nobody else is glorified in them. In just a few hours, one of them's going to be absolutely knocked off his feet by a young girl at a fire who insinuates that she thinks he might be associated with this Jesus. And it's such a horrific thing that he'll swear in order to let her know. He has nothing to do with this man. That's the temperature of what the world at that point thinks about these men. Jesus is glorified by them. So he not only sees what these men were in that hour, but what they would become and what they would accomplish. As such... Jesus knows that His time with them is short. He's leaving the world. They'll remain in it. So He asks the Father to keep them so that they will be one, just like He and the Father are one. So He says, I want you to keep them, and I want them to stick together the same way that we stick together. Now here's where it's kind of hard to understand that because how in the world are you going to be as close to any person on this planet to the tune of God being close to God's Son? almost sounds like an impossibility. He goes on a little bit to elaborate. Not that they will become one, become one, but that they will continually be one, as if they're all family at this point. This is another portion of the passage that that has a a speed bump or two. Um, This is about unity, yes. But some will use this as a proof text for, for... other types of agendas. Um, maybe you've heard of the ecumenical church. And this would be a church that would be free of any denominational lines. And wouldn't that be great if, if we just all could read off the same page. Um, I don't think that's what this is talking about because I, I want to think that Jesus' prayer request will get answered. And you don't have to wait 2,000 years for them to be answered while we figure out how we want to understand this Bible. I think what he means by unity is in the name of Jesus, saved, and they know it, um, that they indeed are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, What is Jesus asking for? What is this common unity here? Well, if they're going to accomplish that for which they are commissioned, the great commission, they're they're going to need to have a common unity. Their wills will bow in the same direction. Their affections will burn with the same flame. All efforts will be aimed to the same end. Will they do that differently? Yes. Between Peter and Paul, there are different ways in which they go at preaching the gospel and winning the lost. But the aim is the same. Um, I thought this was was helpful. This is A.W. Tozer. Some of you are familiar with him. But in, in his Pursuit of God book, he gives this illustration. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Does that make sense? That a church that's common gaze is fixed on the face of God has no real problems, if that's true. But a church who's lost its gaze on the face of God, something other than the Word of God is their ultimate priority. Well, something will take its place. It'll be someone's agenda. Not everyone will like that. Little by little, they'll all assert themselves and destroy what unity they've got because it's not unified. If God has blessed Wake Chapel, I think it's for faithfulness with His Word. And as a byproduct of faithfulness to God's Word, you are a very hospitable, loving, and kind church. That's how that works. This unity that he's praying for is not that everybody gets along. It's that everybody will be on point. The business for which he died, and then they'll all get along. And it'll work so beautifully. Verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, that not one of them be lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. So Jesus had kept them. He's now praying that his Father will keep them while he's away from them. And this, again, is another truth worth an entire sermon. And lots of sermons would use this verse to talk about Those that are saved are kept, and what do we do with the son of perdition? Obviously, he wasn't kept, but obviously, he wasn't numbered among them to start with. First, the son of perdition, and this will help us semantically, seems to point to his character rather than his destiny. Some want to say, well, he was predestined for destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Yes, but we see him as responsible every step of the way. Uh, You put another way, you could say Judas was characterized by lostness, not that he was predestined to be so. And I only mention this because there's an argument from the scriptures uh, that from the mouth of the other disciples in their gospel writings that they don't really go on record saying, but so much that would be incriminating as far as Judas goes. And that it's possible we could meet him in heaven. And I know that's a debate. And seminarians love to waste an entire afternoon over things like that. Be that as it may. I'm afraid that you will find it very difficult to find a harsher description of any human being in the pages of Scripture than what just came out of the mouth of Jesus regarding Judas as the son of shipwreck. That's what that means. His life was a total loss. So there's a lot wrapped up in there. There's a lot wrapped up in all the verses of Scripture. But the point of this verse doesn't seem to focus on Judas as much as it seems to focus on the other disciples. And they're needing not fear. Christ has kept them so that none was lost. And now they're being kept by the Father. And this is another one of those things that we get so wrong so often. We act like this is dependent on us ultimately. Yes, we're supposed to keep things and believe things and receive things. That's all on us. That's the only way to heaven. You must be born again. And to do that, you've got to believe. And repent as well. It's not that this is just done for us osmotically or something crazy like that. But when we're looking at Scripture and we're thinking about eternal security, it's like Peter taking his eyes off the Lord and he's starting to sink. But It's like a human knee-jerk reaction. One of the most helpful things I ever heard regarding this, and it could be described as an illustration right out of the pages of these verses. But the safety of a young child is not dependent on the strength of the grip of his daddy's, on his daddy's hand. The little three-year-old's chubby fingers holding on to the hand of his father is not where the security of that child rests when they cross the street or uh, take a walk on the pier. My wonderful wife always got a little anxious when ours were little when we'd go walking down the pier especially when they'd run straight for the rails to jump up on them the security and safety of the three year old is not in his grip on his daddy's hand but his daddy's grip on his hand right that's how this works the grip's important daddies want the grip of that little hand but ultimately, which one is important? That'd be daddy's. Verse 13. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak... And let's count these, okay? That these things I speak in the world, and that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word that the world, that's two, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world... I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. We've got seven there. If we go to the next verse, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Nine mentions of the word world. How many of you vote? We have a pattern. Patterns should be paid attention to. So let's look at it from that perspective. Again, Jesus is saying that He's leaving this world. He's said it so many times. He's making sure we're not going to forget. And He's been speaking, giving His disciples God's Word so that His joy would be fulfilled in them. So Jesus' gift to these men was God's Word, which is nothing less than revelation. You know what revelation is, right? Not the last book in the Bible, though that's part of the revelation. But revelation is when you find out something, learn something you didn't know before. When you have a big reveal, you pull a curtain back and you see what's back there you couldn't see. All this stuff is new to them. It's revelation. Old Testament didn't have it. Jesus is bringing them fresh, new revelation. You've heard it said of old time, but I say unto you. That was the basis of his message. So he's given them this, that his joy be fulfilled in them. And plain sense of it is the word of the Father is not a natural possession. You don't come out off the shelf with that stuff. That's his gift to you. Right? Given by Christ only. And that Jesus is not of this world. Is easy enough to understand. Duh. He came from heaven. And he's bringing us this revelation. That we didn't have. It's not part of the world. He's not part of the world. But now he says that his followers are not of the world. The way he's not of the world. That's where it begins to not compute. Okay? They were born in this world and they're sinners and they need to believe and keep and receive and all these things to be saved, be born again. So how is it that they're now not of the world like, not the way you're not of the world. They're not God and they didn't come down here at Christmas. So what does he mean by this? In the natural sense, they were of the world, born into it. But go back to what Nicodemus and Jesus talked about. You need to be born again. Of the spirit and of the truth. You were born physically, you need to be born spiritually. And in the way that these men have been born spiritually because of their belief, now they're like Jesus and this world is not their home. They've got another citizenship. Since they're not of the world in this sense, here's what's interesting. It might be thought that the prayer as Jesus is praying would be made that they should be removed from the world. Mission accomplished. They have believed. I'm coming home. Let me take them with me. It's not what he says. Jesus had nothing of the sort in mind. Their place is still in the world. As awful as that might seem. Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, Jonah. All asked for the same thing. Get me out of here. How many of them were answered? None of them. Why? They all had stuff to do. Their purpose in life was not to be happy, but to proclaim the truth. Much of their life wasn't happy at all. So the place of God's people in the world, though again not of it, is in it. Even though the church acts like sometimes they'd rather huddle up in little holy clubs, insulate themselves from all the filth and filthy people, And uh, try to have a better go at it. That's why we really got to be careful in thinking that we deserve for America to be uh, the church's home field advantage. We weren't put here on this planet to enjoy one nation under God and ease of being Christians. He said they'll hate us. I haven't ever felt hated It's getting worse. The home field advantage is gone. But we need to keep that in perspective. So the place of God's people is in the world. His request was rather rather not that they be removed from the world, but kept from the evil one. So they have a task to do in the world, so it makes sense that they should stay in the world. But it's important that they be kept from evil because evil will be the enemy of their task. Does that make sense? They've got to go win the lost. If they're up to their elbows in sin, they won't be good at that job. So the prayer is not get them out of here, but keep them away from evil. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. We're wrapping it up here. But these closing verses of this section tell us that the work of Jesus actually forms the pattern for the work of the disciples I don't know if it dawned on them okay we were chosen by this guy we spent three years by this guy what does this guy have in store for us well his life was actually the pattern of what was in store for them he was sent into the world with good news they are sent into the world with that same good news it's already been said that the Father sanctified the Son and sent Him. Jesus now prays that His Father sanctify these men and send them into the world. It's right there in black and white. Their lives are not to be aimless. They're commissioned. Um, the ramifications of that are, 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 are huge. It's, it's deal breaker time. If we really understand what this means. Jesus didn't submit himself to the death of a cross for us to have our best life now. I wish it were. But to make sure that we spent our lives bringing others with us for our best life in glory. And there's a lot of pain, heartache, sorrow involved in every step of that journey. He's overcome the world. It's all glory later. But for that time, remember, for that short time, he's praying that they've got what it takes. The last verse simply means that Jesus will go to the cross for the disciples. For their sake, I consecrate myself. And it's something that they can't do for themselves. Notice that. For their sake, I consecrate myself. We can't make ourselves holy. If we could do that, we wouldn't need him, right? So he's doing for them what they can't do for themselves so that they may be sanctified or set apart in the truth. So all this prepares the way for the next turn in the prayer, which is next week's paragraph and passage, where he'll pray for those that will believe according to the message that these disciples will preach. So think of it this way. If these are the men who will take the truth of the gospel into a lost world, these 11 whose business is in the world, these men who will tell the world what they heard and saw concerning Jesus, the men who will shoulder the weight of the Great Commission, then don't you think this is a masterful prayer to suit them for what they need? He asks that God keep them in His name so they don't wind up like Judas. He asks that they're kept from evil so they're not neutralized in their effectiveness. And He prays to keep them separated in the truth. And what might that truth be? Look at it, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I could not ask a better prayer to be put together and prayed for your leadership in this church than that right there. To keep your leadership in the name of Jesus. Now that's his business. He's the one that keeps us. Once saved, always saved, right? Should we not pray for something that we know that he's promised to do? No. We should keep praying it so we remind ourselves how important it actually is. That we don't act like we've fallen off the wagon or some foolishness. And then to be kept from evil. What would make the devil more happy than to derail the church's leadership? And just crash the whole thing. Make it a laughing stock. A a buzzword as it was described in scriptures, People making sounds and things as they mock it at, at dinner and, oh yeah, I heard about what happened in that place. Keep us from that and keep them separate in the truth. That word sanctified means set apart, separate. And of the time I've spent in ministry, it's a couple of decades now, the heat is ever rising on the, the obvious separation between what the world thinks and what the church thinks. And what one calls the truth and the other calls the truth. It's not going to get any better. And the separation will grow wider and wider. There will be things that are said that we can't say. And saying them will only infuriate or bring consequences to ourselves. You want to pray that this church moves forward stronger. You pray that its leadership is separated in all that comes with it according to what? The words of God and nothing else. Not public opinion, not some two cents of some guy that's concocted between his ears, but by God's word. Separate us out from the world according to the truth of God's word. Then you'll have a church that'll last even if it's two people. But God will bless it. That's the way it's got to be. What a prayer this is for these disciples. This is our business. We're in the truth business. Remember what derailed the whole thing. Where what God made and said was good was no longer good. When the world was plunged into sin and the snake was cursed. And women couldn't have babies without monstrous amounts of pain. And men couldn't farm without sweat on their heads. And death was involved. And everything just went downhill from there. What did it start with? A lie. But we're in the truth business. And that truth separates us. We should never forget this. And we need this prayer. Pray it for us, please. Take Jesus' prayer. Pray it to the same God. But instead of thinking of those men that are with Him... Think of the men still on this planet and women and teachers and mothers and fathers who are instrumental in the great commission that God left us with. We're beset on all sides with lies. And make no mistake, the biggest liar is your own heart. That's the honest truth. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We need this. And it's Christmas time, and it's the second week of Advent, and love is our theme. The service was was begun with that in mind. We'll end it with that in mind. I'm going to come back after we sing, and I'll read a passage of Scripture, and we'll light this candle, and I'll do my best in a sentence or two to tie all these things together. We're studying Easter. We're celebrating Christmas all kind of at the same time. But we're going to sing through Silent Night. And uh, of the Christmas songs, it's my favorite. And in the last verse, you'll hear about love's pure light. Love is that theme. But for all of this to happen, God has to love a world so much to send that Christmas present to us in the form of His Son. So let's all sing about that together.